Hello, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Are you guys doing okay? All right. Uh, Eugene, how are you doing? Are you good? Uh, well, you know, I'm doing well. Thankfully. I mean, obviously, all things considered, uh, I'm definitely doing well, um, you know, given where a lot of folks are, unfortunately. So, you know, just pushing forward. It's all we can do. Yeah. And we're going to get into some very serious discussions tonight. Um, and actually, there's really no need for me to say that because that makes it sound like I was about to launch into a comedic monologue, which I'm not. Um, well, there could be some comedy here. It's okay to, it's okay to have yeah. some level of levity. Uh, yeah, we do. Yes, that is something I really try to do. Yeah, that's true. But for right now, um, I think we should just sit, tell people who you are. And also, Eugene, you're going to help me really ground this discussion. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, well, now you I'm, you're, I, I'm equally as complicit in the outcome. I yeah, see yeah. Everything that now. yeah, everything that I say, Eugene signs off on. But not everything that Eugene says is something I sign uh, off on. So that's cool. how it goes. But um. We're going to be having a great conversation. Now, of course, people who watch the show know Eugene Purrier is the host of um, Punch-Out News. The Punch-Out. <laughs> I'm sorry. Totally I can literally I, never. I am the host punch of out, the Punch-Out punch podcast on Breakthrough News. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I've probably mentioned that your show is more than anyone who doesn't work on Breakthrough news does i mean but that, that's why i find Which makes it all the more problematic consistently engage yeah. with it and yet continue yeah. to i'm trying to be careful. yeah no that's okay yeah i don't know why i find those yeah anyway um so uh you are a uh your your new podcast is excellent Thank you. um your reporting is excellent your analysis you. is excellent and we are going to be talking today about what just happened uh was there a coup was there an attempted coup is that the wrong word uh, does it matter if it's the wrong word? Is this fascism? Was that fascism? Will there be fascism? Why do we care what we call it? Is that all distraction? Should we just get to work? But um, before we jump into that, and we have an amazing lineup, guys. It's a really incredible lineup. Um, not only is uh, are we going to be joined, obviously, by uh, Eugene and myself, but also a repeat guest, um, repeat offender, Samuel Moyen, who is a professor of law and history at Yale. Uh, also, we're going to be bringing into the fold another repeat, uh, a classic, Daniel Bessner, who is also an historian uh, and an editor at Jacobin. And we'll, I'll give you more detailed bios of them uh, shortly. Uh, and then, once I bring them in, and then uh, Jason Stanley, who is a philosopher. And then Jody Dean, who is a political theorist uh, and author of many books. So... Uh, before we do that, though, Eugene, you are working on a project, a documentary, uh, a yeah. report. Um, Maria, can we just cue that up, that, that video? Um, tell us about this, why we're watching it now, how it relates to, to what's happening now also. Yeah, well, I mean, in some ways we're watching it now because we announced it today. I mean, in some ways, so there's there's that. I think there's just the urgency of the moment for this case, which is about uh, a number of anti-racist organizers in Denver that are facing up to 60 years in prison um, just for the crime of, of protesting. And I think that, you know, it, it's, it's very notable. Well, there's many threads that I think you could probably draw from this and, and maybe, you know, folks seeing this uh, in the conversation will draw from it in their conversation. But I do think that in the context of, uh, 
a range of things. I mean, the popular conversation about what happened on January 6th that has heavily foregrounded the issue of uh, why there seem to be kid gloves treatment for a lot of these uh, ne'er-do-wells inside of the Capitol grounds and vis-a-vis what is done to progressive political movements, certainly um, the uprising against racism we saw over the summer. So there's certainly that kind of basic popular connection. I think there's probably a deeper connection here, um, you know, that's tied to that vis-a-vis um, the other element of that, like what is where some of these police officers and, and to what extent are they complicit? What is the infiltration or the, the cross sort of pollinization between these far right semi-fascistic and fascistic political spheres um, with the state security forces? Um, and how does that play out in the everyday reality of uh, uh, brutal police terror that's waged against, uh, you know, working class, primarily black and brown communities in this country? So I think there's a range of different sort of ties into it. But I think in and above anything else, um, I think a lot of people were you, and are concerned um, in the context of what happened in the Capitol, in the context of the, the campaign to, uh, you know, decertify election results, uh, that democracy, which I think has many, many flaws in the context of the United States, but even that limited sphere um, could be narrowing. And yeah. I think that people are right to be concerned about that. I think there's other, you know, reasons for that. And I think this speaks to that very heavily, um, these kind of heavy charges to be against people protesting for justice while the cops who murdered Elijah McClain did nothing. So we've done this documentary um, that'll be premiering on Saturday. Um, we released the trailer today for Breakthrough News. And, yeah. and that, so that's let's, let's play the trailer. Let's do the full screen trailer. The police are much more prone to brutality here. APD is more likely to kill you. I remember the first night that we heard about what happened to Elijah. And actually, that was the night when he had been brutalized and beat up by the police. He didn't actually die until a few days later. You're saying there are no injuries. The guy's dead. So clearly, things happened to him that were wrong, Mr. B. He probably most likely died from excited delirium. It's it's a criminalization of blackness in and of itself. It's, it's a criminalization of oppressed nations, people in and of itself. We are killed because we are criminals. Like, let's say when Ferguson was going on, when Mike Brown was killed, we didn't have big protests in Denver like we had this summer. We didn't have that energy. Aurora is used to not having things disrupted. This change is... Friday's protest began hours after the police department released a disturbing photo that appears to show three officers mocking McLean's death. At this point, like everybody in Denver and Aurora is like, wow, these cops, they have absolutely no respect for the people here. This is an actual military. Our message was fire the officers who we saw kill Elijah McLean. But instead of doing that, they sent in tanks. They sent in teams of SWAT cops to put us down. And now we're the ones facing charges. That's how ridiculous this is. We're charged. None of these officers. We have to defend these activists in Denver. They're now being threatened with up to 48 years in prison. What's happening to them could happen to anyone in the United States. This is obviously meant to intimidate us, but we aren't going to let this sort of oppression stop us. If we don't lead protests with real power, if we don't show that we're able to shut things down, that we're able to say enough is enough, we won't see any change. Great. Um, okay, so let me just bring 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. So um, congratulations. What was your role in that? Uh, moral support. I uh, have to give all the shout out to, to the rest of our team. Will, Juan, uh, especially, who did a lot of work on this, but really the whole Breakthrough News team. I mean, I was there. I mean, I, I you know, put some eyes on some things, but they really did uh, uh, the majority of the work, including going out there, um, uh, uh, Will and Juan to, to Denver, to, who are, you know, excellent members of our team who perform a lot of roles. So um, shout out to everybody, you know, from the Breakthrough News team who may or may not be watching this, who, who did a lot of work to put this together over the past, you know, few weeks. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that this is an important, uh, you know, contrast, right? The way that these people were treated, um, the police were treated, the way the police treated the, the uh, what are you calling them, by the way, uh, uh, Eugene? Well, the people yeah. at the Capitol? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I think to call it sort of the rioters, whatever you want to call them, I mean, I, I, I will not call them protesters. I mean, it seems to trivialize the, the nature of what was going on. Um, I mean, it seemed really a mob, it is mob behavior. Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting contrast. And uh, I think we should, should we just get into it and just bring in our first guest? I think we're going to flip it a bit, the order. We're going to go to how we thought we were going to do it originally, not to tear down the fourth uh, wall here, but. No, no, no. Uh, I think it's important to show that transparency. I'm, I'm with I know. You. We are getting transparency. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to bring in first um, uh, Jason Stanley, if he's ready, if he gives us this thumbs up, hot off of a, of a Zoom that he did with Refuse with Fascism. Refuse Fascism. Great. So. Andy Z. Uh, Rosie Mc, Rosie O'Donnell, who was obviously the target of Donald Trump for many years, uh, very brutal to hear her stories. Yes, and uh, Jason Stanley, just so people know, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. He is the Jacob Orowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Uh, his latest book is How Fascism Works: The Politics of Us and Them, and he's a contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Review, the Guardian, uh, and other uh, outlets. So, thank you so much for joining us and. Do you want to just talk about what you were just talking about, like what the the purpose of the event you were just at was? The purpose of the event we were just at was to, well, refu Refuse Fascism itself is a communist organization and therefore full system change. Uh, so they, they started about five years ago focusing on Trump as a particular threat. Uh, their underlying ideology is that you ultimately need a system change to uh, to um, to a communist system, which uh, I wasn't necessarily on there to defend, uh, though you know I think oh, wait, we, we, have, we have other guests who will do that on the show. Right? No, I I am uh, you know <laughs> I mean Bob yeah. Avakian is not necessarily the particular person I would choose. Sure. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Uh, so we need a system change, or else this will happen again. Uh, so there's no question right. about right. that. So and then uh, just really quickly, Rosie O'Donnell was there at a refused fascism event. Well, Rosie O'Donnell has been very involved in refuse fascism. She was been a target of Donald Trump's right there, and she is uh, just what she's gone through was stunning to hear. Yeah. She was an early alarm of his misogyny, uh, hatred, and uh, and you know obviously psychological trauma that she's gone through. The, his his supporters have been targeting her year in and year out, and so you know we heard a lot about misogyny. Oh wow! <laughs> um, yeah. So it was, it was, uh, um, so, uh, and the anxiety and terror that she felt when she saw the coup and saw the mm. people who had been sending her death threats mm. uh, for so many years uh, yeah. and saw them on the street. And so I really just listened a lot of the time yeah. uh, because I've, I've had death threats, but what Rosie O'Donnell has gone through, especially seeing Donald Trump who had focused on her, uh, 
then become president and, yeah. and, uh, and continue and be rewarded for that behavior. So, uh, so, so we talked about, we talked about the relation of mass political movements, Black Lives Matter, police, you know, the issues that Eugene raised about police infiltration, how much the left, the communist left has been recognizing this problem for a long time. Um, so the, so the, these were the issues and then what to do about it. So yeah. a lot of the issues overlapping here and, and Rosie O'Donnell objected to the term fascism. She thought that it was too complicated. You gotta have her on. Can you? Can you? Can, well, hold. Invite her on. <laughs> so, so she was. She was. Uh, you know. Uh, so, so we were talking about that. So, uh, and and it just reminded me that it's not a t that you know this is not an academic debate. Sure. We've got to get away from the academic debate. These are lives of human beings and people, and uh, and we face we we face something. Uh, very extreme. We probably the 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 status quo was very extreme. Um, right, it's a good way. So, it, yeah. uh, the status quo was very extreme, and on and and we have different analyses of what Trump represents with regard to that status quo. Yeah. For me, he is the personification of the worst elements of that status quo, and so of some of the worst elements. Uh, like uh, he so to to pick up from Eugene's opening. Uh, you know, we've been being told by black and brown communities for decades that there is far right white supremacy in law enforcement. This is a message we've been told, been told again and again and again. And, uh, you know, we've been Rudy Giuliani. Uh, black communities in New York knew who Rudy Giuliani was. Uh, a lot of us white people did not know who Rudy Giuliani was. Uh, Rudy Giuliani did not become someone else recently. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just that, as usual, as you see in the literature on fascism from figures like M.A. Césaire, what they say is fascism is when what black populations are subjected to, subjected to colonial populations are subjected to, gets turned on white people. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to me, that's a frame of analysis uh, that is important. Uh, my general analysis of the situation comes from the black radical tradition. There is a speech that affects me greatly by Toni Morrison in 1995 called Racism and Fascism. So when we ask, what do we face? Uh, uh, it, it was a Howard University commencement address. And everyone cites Umberto Echo's uh, or fascism piece because, you know, he's a European. But Toni Morrison gives an analysis of fascism in that speech and applies it to America. She comes from America. I mean, let's not forget that in, in last time I did these statistics in 2014, 2015, almost 10 percent of the world's prison population yeah. came from was African-American. So so she talks about what she says is she says that America has often preferred fascist solutions to uh, to its political problems. And then she describes what fascist solutions are. Large prison camps, violent militarization. And to me, my reading of the situation we face is Trump is a kind of personification of those fascist forces. Uh, as, so, as a New Yorker, as somebody, you know, I'm from Syracuse, New York, but I've spent many years in New York. My mother was, worked for, was a court stenographer in Manhattan and Hunter Center Street in Manhattan criminal court during the Central Park Five case. Mm. Uh, you know, so so I know what Donald Trump is from the Central Park Five case. 
And so, and, and on, as many New Yorkers do. So, so the status quo was uh, bad, but Donald Trump was someone who blew fl- flame on the fire of the status quo of the 90s. So was Joe Biden, and so was, was Bill Clinton. Uh, the 1990s uh, criminal justice era uh, was one of horror, but Donald Trump was a sort of rhetorical representation of that horror. So I take him as representing these incredibly problematic forces in American history. I'm not wedded to the terminology of fascism, but I am wedded to a terminology that allows us to make predictions. And I think Sam, who Sam and I have a lot of overlaps and really not as many disagreements as people think, or not that many disagreements at all. the wrong guy. Uh, yeah, but uh, but uh, but I mean, we have some disagreements because we've had made indifferent empirical claims about what would happen because I regard Donald Trump as a personification unique of uniquely American forces, forces that figures from Du Bois through Angela Davis through Toni Morrison have called fascist. I made certain predictions. I do not underestimate Donald Trump, so that was our difference. I don't under uh, about predictions. I always thought. Donald Trump would not leave office peacefully. I always thought he would try to win over law enforcement. I always thought that he would do things like pardon Ryan Gallagher, the Navy SEAL officer. He, he's always seemed to me a clever, smart, cunning figure yeah. who leans into America and is incredibly dangerous, uh, which is not to vindicate the status quo. Uh, it's, to, it's to say that Given that, that how hor- horrific the status quo is, having someone who's legitimating the worst elements of the status quo, having someone who's bringing a Rudy Giuliani to to the nation, uh, is, is is something we need to be we need to take seriously. So I, I I have always been the coup is something that I expected. Um, the coup is something the the well, whatever we call it the yeah. the, the language. You know, I, I think some of the language is, in, is important for political reasons um, because, so for instance, I, I, I'm a philosopher of language and uh, you know, and I also work on the far right. So the far right had a big celebration about the expression alt-right, which was mm-hmm. the fight about who gets credit for it between Richard Spencer and one other famous, I think the editor of Cross Currents, cur- Cross Currents, Counter Currents. Um, and it's a big propaganda win. Julius Klein, the Julius. Klein, no, no. Uh, he's a philosophy PhD. Okay. Um, unfortunately, oh, <laughs> yeah. Too many members of the, uh, Not all <laughs> philosophy PhDs. Hashtag yeah. Um, so, so there's a fight among the fascists uh, about who gets credit for it because when you call them the alt right, that sounds like a Seattle grunge band. Yeah. They, so it's an enormous propaganda win. I think yeah. it's an enormous propaganda win yeah. that they were called populists by figures like Yasha Monk. Because populists, yeah. then you can blame the left and the right. Oh, yeah. see, so it's the terminology is important. It's important because it places the blame correctly. And then it's important, uh, and, and it doesn't whitewash in the way that alt-right does. Uh, and then it's important in, in that it allows us to make predictions. One of the ways I characterize fascist, I'm a philosopher, so I'm not going for this historian. We have to locate, yeah. I'm, I give a theory of fascism. And here's a sort of working characterization we can work with. A cult of the leader who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by immigrants, communists, uh, my, and, and minorities. 
uh, he, he, he presents himself as the only solution. And so I, I, my, on my framing, if that's the right analysis, Donald Trump was going to try to seek to take over the Republican Party, and he was not going to try to leave power. Um, now, I think the, the Republican Party is incredibly dangerous. I agree with Chomsky's assessment. It is the most dangerous organization on earth. As uh, I've worked on Flint, Michigan, uh, done many a lot of work on the emergency manager right. law, and you didn't need the Russians to poison 6,000 yeah. people. Nor, nor did you need a Republican to drink water and right. say that he probably was exposed to lead as a kid. That's Barack yeah. Obama for anyone out there who doesn't know the reference. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and the. Which doesn't uh, undermine what you're saying, but yeah. Uh, uh, the Democratic Party has enormous complicity. Why do we face what we face? We face what we face in, in large part because of the failure to prosecute the Iraq war, the failure to seek accountability for the Iraq war. We were left with ICE. Uh, from my, I've argued in the New York Times after an AOC called ICE, called, used the concentration camp analogy. I've argued that ICE is similar to the Gestapo in various ways, should raise worries there, is a potential organization that could be used by an authoritarian leader against its political opponents. We need to get rid of ICE. Um, we, we need to get, we need, we should have prosecuted the torture regime. We yeah. should have punished the people responsible for the Iraq war and the financial crisis. And all of this was not done. And the message we gave is people can do that with impunity. And I'm concerned that if we don't take seri uh, seriously enough the 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 Trump administration, we're going to uh, we're going to have a situation where where people take it uh, where people take the wrong lessons just as they did with the Iraq war and the financial crisis. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I really appreciate your acknowledging those things because um, there is sometimes a binary, right, where it's, uh, I mean, I do this. I often will focus justifiably on the Dems more than Republicans in large part because everyone I know hates Republicans. Um, but, uh, and I want to bring in our, uh, you know, I want to bring in Daniel and Sam uh, shortly, but can you, as someone who studies the far right, can you just kind of lay the ground for what happened, what the involvement of different organizations were that we know of, how law enforcement was infiltrated? We have, we don't know the degree to which law enforcement is infiltrated. Sure. We know from ground level work for decades, uh, my colleague Elizabeth Hinton is working on this. Black and black community has been telling us for decades that law enforcement has been infiltrated by the far right. So in the last four years, Donald Trump has clearly been courting the far right among law enforcement. He's been courting law enforcement. They've been backing off. They've uh, The Obama administration, uh, you know, I, I really think we need to protect civil liberties. On the other hand, you know, I want my family to be safe. And so somebody needs to, there's a lot of independent, it's been left to independent actors to track the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys. One thing we know, one thing we know, and you know, is that there are a lot more Proud Boys than you think. Um, so my, if, if we think of this as fascism, we're going to be able to understand this. We're going to be able to understand that it's not just the working, it wasn't the working class to, among the insurrectionist terrorist mob attacking the Capitol. That was not the poor disenfranchised working class. There was a three-time Olympic gold medalist in the middle of them. Uh, it was, it, you know, thinking about his fascism makes you realize, no, it's not the poor disenfranchised yeah. working class. This is uh, the auto dealers, the owners of auto dealerships. This is the business people. This is, this is a lot of people 
uh, in America. And the extreme, and a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump are not down for this. A lot of people have to vote for Donald yeah. Trump are scared of communists, scared of, uh, but uh, but are against our pro life, but are anti taxes. But a lot of, but we have, Donald Trump has massively expanded the ranks of the far right. Uh, and we don't know because Donald Trump's various enforcement agencies are not tracking that. We just have Talia Lavin and a bunch of independent actors, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who are tracking this. So we we need Germany. There's a lot of there's a lot of attention paid to Germany because Germany has realized they have a lot of far right in their law enforcement, a yeah. lot of Nazis. We've had four years of completely ignoring. Don't we know already? We had a big problem. We need to know, we know that 70, there are not 74 million fascists in America. That's absurd. But there are more than there were four years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, Katie, if I could just jump in real yeah, quick here and just to speak to this directly too. I mean, the Capitol Police, in terms of what we know, I think worth noting, um, you know, their holiday party in 2019 was at the Trump Hotel. When I lived in D.C. for 15 years, there's one fraternal order of police lodge there for Metropolitan Police, uh, Capitol Police, and also Metro PD. So there's that. They actually have three different unions, but they're in one FOP. They endorsed Trump in 2016. Um, they were then forced to retract it because some black officers inside of the union had protested. Um, and but you know, you, those are the politics of those people. The president of the DC, of that DC FOP has a history of liking uh, at least white supremacist adjacent websites. And I can say for sure, because I work directly on this, the internal culture of the Metropolitan Police Department is very similar. Um, there was a, a case I worked on a few years ago uh, where there was a, these t-shirts basically that were mocking the black community. They were part of something called the Power Shift Crew, um, the most depressed working class black community of DC. And there was this jump outs, which is like stop and frisk on wheels. And one thing they would always say um, when they would jump out at people is, you know, show me your waistband, Joe, because in D.C., Joe is like a thing people say, and they roll up real quick, guns pulled, um, terroristic practice. So they had these shirts that were the Grim Reaper um, and all sorts of violent imagery and the show me your waistband, Joe, which, you know, the whole community was outraged because it was obviously mockery of this community. And so that's deeply rooted in, in these officers. And then, it, it, and you know, I also want to take it one level higher, too, because, you know, obviously there was some discrepancy over why the, why the National Guard issue was not called out when they were supposed to. There's the the officer from Capitol Police who was anonymously interviewed by Daily Beast who was saying there was an explicit lack of Mm leadership at all times, anywhere. Um, and by the way, also noted that mo- you have to be said half the people rhetorically uh, or anecdotally uh, in the force voted for Trump. Um, so, I, I mean, we'll see if there's a real investigation here. But I think to me, and, and I agree with, with what Jason is saying here, too, sometimes I think there's there could be a literary element to it um, in terms of how, how we look at it. I mean, my own view is, you know, I, I think Trump, I don't view Trump as ideologically f- as a fascist, but I don't know if that's the point. I mean, I think if you look at the history, even of Germany, um, you know, the Brunigs, the Van Poppins, the people who thought they were uh, they were the ones who ultimately facilitated his rise. So I think Trump and, and many Republicans, I mean, the Republican Attorney General's Association is doing robocalls for this rally. Turning Point USA is bringing 80 buses here. Uh, I, I mean, it seems relatively clear to me um, that even if these people don't aren't fascist, um, that, you know, they are in a marriage of convenience with, you know, these either people who are actually fascist or adjacent to it. And I think that's the other thing that's relevant and, and also mentioned by 
I, uh, Jason, and I think that a lot of us are also talking about and considering in general, is if, if we recognize that the Jim Crow South was basically a fascist dictatorship and the role of, of racist, violent mobs in the overthrow of Reconstruction, there's like a red, white, and blue fascism, certainly learned through from the Nazis, that allows people to present as a defensive bourgeois democracy, an extremely authoritarian politic. And, and, and perhaps, you know, we can quibble about what that's called, but I think that's very dangerous and very scary. And the differences with that sort of American DNA sort of weaved in there, I think is what can make it so dangerous because I, I do think we should talk about everything that, you know, Germany, Italy, Modi and in India, Bolsonaro, we should be looking at all the parallels. But I think that sort of typical Americanness can kind of lull us into a sense of, of, of false security in a way. And then the final thing I'll just say about that is, uh, and this is just a historical point, I think we should appreciate more than ever the anti-fascist elements of the civil rights movement and the banishing of Jim Crow and the expansion and belief that there should be broad democratic equal rights for all people, which is pretty much a product of that struggle. And as we see the gains of that struggle fading, no surprise, we see these forces coming back. So wherever Trump himself is situated, I think there's a lot to be said. But I want to see how high this thing goes. I think there's a lot of questions. As someone who was once almost maced in the face at point blank range in the Capitol for talking too loud at a peaceful sit-in, something was going on. You know, it, it, and it wasn't just rank and file officers, although I think they were also involved. And it seems clear. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to interject briefly with that. Everything, everything Eugene said. Yeah. Um, except hopefully you weren't almost maced. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, but you're co-signing that. Yeah. No, I mean, and something we I mean, we may want to bring in our next guest because I think something really fascinating about this. And again, I know we don't want to be too academicological. Is that a word? Um, but uh, we should make it one, though. I certainly can. That's the whole point. I'm, I'm reclaiming this. Um, but no, not to make it too literary, as you said, um, or historiographical. But, you know, there is a whole discussion of what the ideology of fascism is and how part of fascism, right, is it, it's, is its ideological flexibility. Um, so on that note, why don't we bring in two historians who can interrogate this and problematize this? Um, well, say as a history major from Howard University, I'm yeah. also historians and a reference to a Howard University commencement. It's a good start here from my yeah, right, university. Yeah. So without any further ado, uh, Daniel Bessner, welcome. Nice new glasses. Um, uh, thank you, Katie. Thank you. And Sam Moyne, nice, same. I like the glasses just the way they are. Don't think they're new, but they're, I like they're the same as last time. They're the same as last time. Yeah. And um, Daniel is a historian. He is a non-resident um, fellow at the Quincy Institute and um, also an editor at Jacobin. And Sam is a uh, professor of uh, law and history at Yale University. Um, so what do you guys have? I just wanted to give you the chance to intervene. I'm trying to drop all these academic words. <laughs> Uh, perfect. Well, Katie, I just want to say uh, also thanks for having me on. And it's a pleasure to finally meet Jason. Jason, uh, hello, and thanks for joining. And Eugene, good to see you again. Uh, so it's funny. I think Jason said to me online a couple of times that we, we agree more than we disagree. And I think on the whole, that that's right. I think we share a general uh, framework of the world and, and what caused Donald Trump ultimately and what we need to do going forward. Um, but listening to him talk, I, I think I just want to highlight what I think we disagree on. And maybe we could go from there and we could, the discussion could go wherever it may go. Um, first, I think we just fundamentally disagree on the political efficacy of the fascism analogy, and that might be because I partly focus on liberal anti-fascism. Um, I understand and respect the left-wing tradition uh, from which Jason emerges, and I, I mean, I, I would probably broadly align, no, certainly broadly align myself with that, absolutely. Um, 
My criticism of the now, uh, analogy, though, comes from the fact that in my reading of history, it's been liberal anti-fascism forming the foundation of the modern liberal technocratic state that has actually been just historically more efficacious, that it's been more powerful. And so I am worried just fundamentally about the deployment of the analogy and how it will be taken up um, by the Biden administration. And I think it's the fact that that Jason um, is very much on the left, I know, but a lot of the people who were promoting the uh, analogy were very much not on the left, and they were deploying it to particular political ends. Uh, and there must might just be a fundamental disagreement about the political efficacy of it. And we'll see, you know, time will tell who's right and who's not right. Um, I also just, uh, as a historian, a historian who studied Nazi Germany very closely, particularly the last five years of the Weimar Republic's, uh, as German history as well, the last five years of the Weimar Republic's collapse, the literal micro history of 1928 to 1933, um, I just don't see what's happening today in the United States as particularly analogous to that very unique situation of post-World War I Germany, a generation of scarred veterans, years of street battles, the particular chaos of a, of a, of a German state that had not been democratic for very long, um, and various other traumas that are, uh, happened in Germany in the post-World World War I period. The United States has had its fair share of traumas from Iraq to Afghanistan to an awful legacy of racism that, that permeates everything we do to uh, indigenous genocide. I just don't think the proximate causes of what's happening today are meaningfully analogous to what happened in the Germany of the 1920s. Um, um, and while I agree with everyone that there is a real danger posed uh, posed by the far right. I think it's important to investigate why so many people have found QAnon appealing, particularly since the COVID-19 pandemic, the rise of the Proud Boys and these sorts of organizations. I think, I, I, I guess, fundamentally, when one is making that call between um, the threat posed by the far right to the republic and the, the cost and civil liberties that it will actually cost to combat that right by an American state run by the Joe Biden administration, I just think that cost and civil liberties is too high. It might be because I'm a 9-11 baby, it might be because my teens and 20s were uh, seeing the transformation of the American state into a particularly grotesque national security um, uh, and surveillance state, which I think, you know, has had very negative effects on people of color, on, on uh, left wing organizers, et cetera. I, I'm very wary to uh, inflate a threat that I don't think is existential. Uh, and then finally, um, I guess this is a political judgment, but I don't think we need the fascism analogy to get what we want. There is a long, awful history of racism, of authoritarianism, of tyranny in this country. We don't need to other what's happening here by pointing to a pro profoundly European example, an ideology that came from a very peculiar European context. I think we have our own history that's awful enough, going back to the before the founding of the Republic to the first encounter in uh, what is now uh, Mexico, uh, that we don't need to draw on this othering, very recent analogy that is not particularly similar to what's going on now in my political judgment. So I just want to say I was really nice to hear Jason, and uh, that's where I stand. <laughs> nice. And uh, Sam, and then, of course, the people will have a chance to respond, but do you want to? Yeah, I'll say a couple of things. But first, you know, it's a pleasure to be here, I guess. And I, I admire all these these folks. Um, you know, I, I really agree a lot with what's what's been said. And, and maybe to combine what Jason uh, and Danny just said, it's it's absolutely true that we can kind of deploy a a left critical vision of anti-fascism. That's who invented it, after all. And it's true that black radicals have made major contributions to that discourse, but it's not dominant, never has been. And it's not dominant right now. So as, as Danny says, we need to be very careful 
that we control the risks. And if you just omit the problem that the centrist mainstream has just declared war on fascism, just as it did after 9-11, then you really haven't reckoned with what's at stake in the analogy. So how do we correctly access the promising features of this tradition while containing its noxious ones? And you know, if, if we're not acknowledging both sides there, I think we really haven't been honest. But I want to say something that goes beyond what Danny's, I think, rightly pointed out on this score, which is that you know, we can't just read half the news in our analysis of, of the Trump administration. You know, so some of us have been arguing throughout that the amazing thing was, in a sense, um, how weak he turned out to be. Uh, that's not fascism. Right. We, you uh, and I, at least of any kind that, that, that we've seen uh, in, in the past. And even January 6th, which Jason and others are taking to be the great confirmation event, uh, I think more, more vividly illustrates how weak a man he is. So even before the riot broke out, uh, he'd, he'd lost his alliance with Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence, who had resolved to end his you know, imaginative or symbolic insurrection before the real one took place. And so his ability, which is real and scary, to uh, call out some goons, although we have to debate how many, uh, turns out to be one fact in a, a, against a set of facts that reveal that we're looking at a, a, different, a different kind of thing, uh, I believe, than, than the fascism analogy helps us get at. Not that there's not truth to it, but we can't screen out what doesn't fit let me make one last point. You know, I, I really appreciated what Eugene said um, about um, the about Jim Crow and the civil rights movement facing it down. I absolutely believe it. It can be seen uh, Jim Crow as a form of fascism, and indeed, we know that it actually inspired Adolf Hitler and his you know minions to some extent. Uh, but it's not factually correct to say that the civil rights movement much posed as an anti-fascist movement. And here's one reason why, because they knew that there were a lot of people they had to recruit to their side. Uh, and, you know, fascism is a really hard thing to come back from. So, you know, Jason, you know, like maybe mention this briefly, but we have a certain number of folks, you know, uh, punks in Charlottesville and most recently at the Capitol. You know, we can talk about how many, but to get from there to 70 odd million for a man who increased his voting share, including amongst the victims of so-called fascism, uh, I think is, is a huge challenge. And what we need to do is figure out how this man could win once, could win against the Republican Party and then against Hillary Clinton, who failed, and then increased his gains, uh, while Biden won thanks principally to wealthy suburbanites. And if we don't focus there, then how can we contain this threat?
And so I think calling, you know, those those whom we can recruit rather than incorrigible fascists is just a mistake because we have to figure out what we could share with them and why they're not on our side already. Claire, Eugene, you were you were saying that the civil rights movement was a big anti-fascist movement. Is that I'm saying I think we should appreciate the anti-fascist character. I mean, I think right. Sam is correct historically. I mean, I think if we're sort of looking at the, you know, just the, the actual ripple effects of it, I mean, um, if we even recognize Jim Crow uh, as a form of, at least derivative form of fascism, as it were, I think just the revival of the civil rights movement of the reconstruction concept of the 14th Amendment, um, the revival of the reconstruction removal laws, the ending of the poll tax, um, and then, of course, you know, maybe not the final breaking up of the Klan, they're still around, um, but as a powerful political organization, I think you can certainly say it had anti-fascist echoes. And if to some degree democracy, uh, even in a bourgeois sense, if we're talking about sort of fascism in the European sense, is if not the ant- something of an antithesis to fascism, I think the appreciation for democracy in this country expanded dramatically because of the civil rights movement and the horizon of it and the significance of it. But I think historically, 100% correct. And, and you know, I, I mean, I, I think many, most of the point- uh, uh, It's uh, an anti-fascist movement. You were right. You- I think the points are, are well taken in a way uh, across a lot of, well, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Were you saying it was anti, like when were you saying it was anti-fascist in a certain way or were you saying it opposed fascism? Because uh, Sam, are you saying that they did oppose fascism in their function, but they didn't frame it as an anti-fascist movement? Correct. I, I think, of course, if, if we operate with a black radical interpretation of fascism, well, there was fascism in America before there was in Europe. And that's true on that right. theory. But that doesn't mean that civil rights activists, even radical ones like Malcolm X, opposed Jim Crow as fascism. Uh, And and I'm trying to figure out why. Well, one reason is that they understood that they were in a enough of a democracy that they didn't they didn't need to, you know, roll in the U.S. Army to Germany. They needed to win elections and get people on their side. And, you know, calling someone a fascism is a strange, fascist is a strange way to do it. Well, I don't know, I actually disagree slightly. I mean, I do think that they put Hoover in the framework of a fascist, you know, sort of secret police state, you know, even in the 63 era and the early era. So I think it was certainly being drawn in the evolution, of course, of the civil rights movement into the quote unquote black power movement, the more radical phase, you know, the National Committee to Combat Fascism became sort of central organizing principle uh, of the Black Panther Party and was reaching millions of people. So um, obviously George Jackson and the many different pieces. But I was honestly just making that point as a derivative point about appreciating some of our our past history vis-a-vis that. And, And I know Daniel wants to get in. I'll just say very quickly, I mean, I do think his point is very well taken about sort of looking at our own history of very brutal politics. And and to me, I I think that is kind of the core of the argument um, and why in some ways I think the fascism discourse is important and does take us some of the way there because I think just the very fact of comparing and contrasting what happened in Germany, what happened in Italy, what is its derivative in America? I I mean, I think we could also ask questions in India right now. I mean, obviously Modi is winning elections. Um, There's a very dynamic democratic process in India, um, but it's also being used and perverted in a way that uh, you know, the love jihads is, is very problematic. Um, so what is the interplay between sort of 
things that we think of as fascism. How do we put fascism, authoritarianism? How does that fit in with democracy? I think using the discourse and, and raising the question is exactly what sort of drives us down the road to, to really be able to grasp the particularity of it um, in many ways. So it was, you were making a term about framing and discourse as opposed to the effect, whether they had a, an anti-fascist effect, right? Just to, okay. Um, Jason and Daniel, who, Jan, Daniel then Jason? Yeah, just um, very quickly, uh, I think there, there's a lot there's a lot there, and I think it is interesting to compare these sorts of regimes and see how they operate and see sort of the eternal characteristics. That That's useful, but um, the thing that I'm talking about when I talk here is really about political efficacy. So to go back to the 1960s, the people, if you look at like the mainstream media, you know, the Times, uh, the Post, the mainstream media, the people who are identified as uh, fascists were the 68 protesters, Right. Because what's actually powerful in this country in fascist discourse is the it's the way liberals discipline the left in terms of like true, like most impact on American politics in the last 60 years, 60 plus years. It's been deployed by liberals to discipline the left. Um, and as it was in the 1960s, um, you get much more criticism of SDS's proto-fascists uh, than you get from the civil rights movement calling the uh, Southern state fascists. I think that is an empirical uh, truth. Okay. So, um, so okay, so I just wanted to make that point, which is again, highlights again, sorry, Jason, please. Yeah, and well, then I, also, Jason, one second. I just realized I want to, I didn't realize how much time flies. So I want to bring in Jody. Jody because she's going to be part of the what is to be done discussion, yeah. but I want her here also. So Jody, welcome. Um, Jody Dean, thank you so much. Political theorist, author, uh, and editor of uh, 13 books. Thanks right. so much for, for yeah. having me on. Right, um, first, I I want to say like, I um, I used to agree with um, Dan and Sam, right? I used to, in the beginning of the um, Trump administration, I thought that the language of fascism was really super overblown. And um, I don't think that anymore. But I don't think it's because it's not about Trump the person, it's about the mobilization of a particular mob, right? I mean, it's a set, it's a, it's a reaction to the present mob. And I think it's important not to remain attached to a diagnosis that might have made a lot of sense two or three years ago, but doesn't make as um, as much sense right now. Um, I also think that it's important to say, like Sam's argument's like, well, you know, if you call it fascism, that's not a hegemonic use of fascism. It's it's it doesn't the the um, the diagnosis that comes out of the knowledge of the Jim Crow South isn't um, one that's widely shared. It's kind of marginalized or something like that. We got to ask, well, why was that diagnosis marginalized? That was itself because of anti-communism in the United States. It's because of the fascist tendencies under McCarthyism that made that diagnosis not take hold, right? That's part of the symptoms. And um, I want to go back on the, on the question of the depth of the diagnosis that America, that particularly the South under Jim Crow and the way, the, the structure of the Southern state through white supremacy, that diagnosis as fascist goes back way before um, World War II. You can find it already in texts that are comparing, that are using the Scottsboro Boys case yeah. to connect with the um, in um, Italy's invasion of Ethiopia and arguing that 
anyone who's going to stand up against fascism abroad has to stand up yep. against fascism at home. And black so, Abraham Lincoln Brigade uh, fight. Absolutely. African Americans who went to fight in Spain, right? Who were called proto fascists. Yeah. Anti-fascist, proto-anti-fascist, sorry. sorry. So, so this is a, there's a powerful argument here that is deeply embedded in U.S. history that needs to be brought out. And I do agree, though, with Sam. It's like you don't win anything by calling all of Trump's um, supporters fascists. That's true. But what you can do is use the diagnosis to divide Trump supporters, divide the Republican Party, and start to create like a different set of connections between between the left. I mean, fascism arises when the left is weak or when the political system has suppressed the left and prevented the left from giving expression to popular grievances. So this, so the left needs to strengthen itself and not just dismiss any old Republican as a fascist, but carefully explain here, here are the legacies of fascism. Here are their current incarceration, their in, in, incarnations, and don't be on that side. Uh, Jason, did you want to thank you by the way? Uh, Jody, just said everything I believe. So, uh, so uh, the, the, uh, the, I do, I do take, uh, you know, for me, the civil rights. So, uh, so I want to set out some points to see w w where we are. I think there's an empirical question. Like if I believed what Daniel believed about the role of the word fascism in American history, I was going to say earlier that then I might have his position, but I don't believe that. But then Jody came in and said, even if that were so, even if that were hegemonic, why should we let it be hegemonic? It's the fascist. It's the fascist element in American society that makes it hegemonic. We need to con contest that, and that was very powerful. That didn't occur to me as a response, and 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 that's moving and powerful because the tradition that Jody and Eugene are speaking of is a tradition that is so meaningful for me, uh, and is so meaningful in American history, the anti-fascist tradition. Um, that so so there's one so there's so I think that there, da Daniel made a point and I wanted to say I empirically disagreed with it but now I don't have to even say it it's sort of though that empirical disagreement is irrelevant his point was here's the effect of using fascism and Jody just so powerfully said well let's challenge that he hegemony um, and and speak up for the communist past of America frankly. Uh, which gets minimized in these discussions, the role of communist organizations and black liberation, um, the role of J George Jackson. And, you know, these are the people who used fascism. And Jody is absolutely right that 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 we need to represent for that for that tradition. Now, just to, to address Sam's point, um, and Sam and I talk about this on our walks and our discussions. The Social need distance walks, I hope. Uh, the, the, the need to, you know, the role of... Uh, you know, the fact that you can't call 74 million people fascists, that's not true. I remember Peter Gordon was talking to my wife uh, and Peter Gordon was saying, you know, a lot of people who voted for the Nazis weren't fascists. They weren't weren't fascists. They were just ordinary conservatives who were scared of communists and scared of that was, in fact, a lot of the, the base of uh, the voting base of the fascists. And my wife looked at him and said, uh, my partner looked at him and said, uh, "If if you vote for the fascists, aren't you, aren't you a fascist?" <laughs> so so now I don't think that's right, <laughs> but but uh, but, uh, but he was even saying that most many members of the Nazi Party weren't Nazis. Peter was saying many members of the Nazi Party weren't Nazis at all, and he was saying this to her. So her point was, if you're a member of the Nazi Party, aren't you uh, aren't you a fascist? So 
So it's certainly correct. History tells us even in the in the and Daniel was talking about causes. My work isn't about causes. I'm a philosopher. What's happening in India has different causes than what's happening in Brazil and what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Germany at different causes than what's happening in Italy. Um, you know, I'm a philosopher. I'm talking about politics and rhetoric. Uh, causes, those are differ, you know, and those are relevant. But yeah, of course, there's going to be different causes in different countries. But as a philosopher, you're looking at a uniform structure. Um, and the, finally, Sam's point, uh, so to address Sam's point about how do you address the political efficacy of fascism, um, Jody already answered this, basically. It's efficacious insofar as it splits people. It says, you know, Actually, actually, you know, so there's a lot of pro there's a lot more people who are basically everyone in this panel is going to agree fascist, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and there's many more than there were four years ago, because frankly, when the president of the United States does that from the podium, that creates it. But obviously, most of the people who voted for Trump, the vast majority, are, but, you know, are not. not. So Sam is right. You cannot. Uh, but Jody, uh, but. Uh, let me just address the point about the civil rights movement to defend Eugene's analysis, and then I'll I'll stop. Uh, so Sam is right. The civil rights movement was an attempt to convince people, but it was not an attempt to convince. It was what it was. An, it was not an attempt to convince the fascists in the South. <laughs> they knew they were not going to convince the fascists in the South. It was an attempt to convince people not there. Uh, that there was a real fascist problem in the South. Uh, so that's why they got beaten on Edmund, Edmund Pettus Bridge. When I spoke at the University of Alabama in 2017 uh, in the uh, program on race and gender, um, you know, uh, and I was with these, these young people, the people whose grandparents were part of the civil rights movement and told me about the group that stayed there and, you know, one of them was like, yeah, my grandmother raises her pants leg every Christmas and says, this is where Bull Connor's uh, dogs bit me. Uh, and they were armed, you know. I mean, they they in the South, I think, like, people, those old school civil rights movement and the, and, their, and, the, and people 30 years old, they are armed because they know that there are, in fact, uh, you know, uh, it's it, they're not going to do much convincing with some groups in the South. And the civil rights movement was trying to show the America that that was in the South. Yeah. And can I actually ask um, Jody, I um, wanted to ask you because you touched on this, but I think a lot of people aren't totally uh, and I need to do that, uh, aren't that familiar with the kind of anti-communist organizing, anti-communist uh, history and how that has created uh, an opening for uh, fascism. So um, I think if we just start with the McCarthy era, we start can remind people about the trials that the um, 12 leading members actually ended up being 11 of the Communist Party were subjected to um, sentenced to prison. Some people were deported. Um, Paul Robeson was a major um, black communist leader. His passport was denied and he was basically hounded. Um, what, what people often forget is that a lot of the leadership of the Communist Party in the uh, late 30s, early 40s, through the very early 50s, um, were leaders in um, anti-racist struggle, anti-white supremacist struggle. They were black leaders. They ran black candidates. And so the attack on communists was also an attack 
on people fighting against the segregated South. They were fighting against Jim Crow laws. There's a really interesting book on what happens to the professional McCarthy witnesses after those um, show, you know, after those trials kind of uh, wind down. They move south and become professional defenders of segregation. And one of their arguments is, oh, you know, you, you, we have to oppose segregation because that brings in communists and we have yeah. to oppose communists because that brings in um, desegregation. And so yeah. there's a super tight link in the middle of the 20th century that continues to, um, to, to today between the anti-racist struggle and um, a struggle and, and, and opposition to anti-racism being framed as communist. And in part because communists were anti-racist. Right. Um, and so folks have, when the far right um, accuses, um, you know, Pelosi and all the rest of them as being communist, they're not just regurgitating an old, tired, um, red-baiting rhetoric. They're also doing a dog whistle racist politics, right? That legacy is strong in the right. And we and we need to acknowledge that and be specific. And so people who are anti-communists need to recognize who their bedfellows are. Yeah, if only, and it's also not fair to call her that because then it gets our hopes up. It's <laughs> uh, kidding, we don't actually think she's a feminist. Um, and so this has been a great dialogue and discussion about kind of the origins. And there's obviously still a lot to be that we could be mining and discussing. But I wanted to kind of uh, shift this towards what can be done now. Like, how does this discussion inform what we do moving forward? And I do think an important question is the divide and conquer versus alienate. Like, how do we talk about this or organize around this in a way that because there is some annoying like uh, mic resistance discourse, which is like everyone is a fascist, everyone who voted for this person, like the blood is on your hands. And then there's also, uh, you know, we have to be like acknowledge what happened, what happened at the Capitol, but also what, how that fits into the larger, not just history, but like recent history. And yeah, how we do take this into account when we organize. Uh, I think that one of the crucial things there is a way is the the language and the charge that this was a fascist mob with fascist intent is important as because it can break down the sort of both sideism that is too prominent and it can be a wedge against reconciliation. I mean, we can fully, so this is again where I, I, I don't completely share um, Daniel's current analysis. Like I don't, I'm not worried about Biden um, using the words or the diagnosis of fascist because I'm more worried about him uh, using the language of reconciliation and moving together and building unity. We know he can work with segregationists. And so right. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of his appeal. We have to fight against that. And this um, charge, this the, the situating of the current struggle in history and the recognition that it is a fascist, that this has been a fascist movement, helps us put a wedge against that kind of rehabilitation of what's ostensibly a segregationist kind of reconciliation. Right? That, that's got to be off the table. Unity at all costs is not unity. Unity at all costs is oppression and exploitation. Hmm. Okay, I want to ask you more about that, but Dan, you know, I thought I saw your hand go up. Uh, in, yeah. uh, in just very quickly, I, I I think we do fundamentally disagree about the constellation of forces, uh, which is then just going to necessarily um, influence what we emphasize at what moment. So I think Jody's absolutely right with that. I just wanted to make clear I wasn't referring to Biden himself, but it's sort of 
permanent security state that has expanded since 9-11. I don't think it really matters what Joe Biden himself does. I think it has to do with a broader social logic of, of surveillance and um, endless imperialist war um, that has been uh, endorsed by every American president since 1945, uh, including Barack Obama, uh, George W. Bush, Clinton, and everyone uh, before them. Uh, so I think that is a very extraordinarily powerful social institution um, that uh, has more influence in shaping what happens in, in, in this country. Um, and it has the most influence when it's given a blank check by, by sort of the, the liberal establishment and liberal elite. Um, so I'm worried that like this elite has done for decades since 9-11, it will use this present crisis um, or uh, for its own ends. And I think that's a real fear. I think it's happened over and over again. Um, Sam and then Jason. You know, it, I, I love I love what everyone said, and I, I admired Jody greatly. I would just put a bit more focus on the Democratic Party in, in this moment and not so much on, on Biden, who's kind of a figurehead for yeah. the, the kind of mainstream of the Democrats who won. And, you know, for, for all that we might like to make a counter hegemonic tradition of anti-fascism, you know, more significant, uh, we're, we're facing a moment in which this uh, anti-fascist idea um, is having this function, which we can't deny, of liquidating the Democrat sin uh, as if they aren't implicated in the coming of Trump, uh, uh, as if their form of race consciousness is remotely adequate to our moment. Uh, and January 6th, I think, in the long run, uh, will sadly uh, come to be seen as a moment that strengthened the Democrats' complacency uh, as they head into four years uh, of governing. So I, 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 I think, you know, Danny's raising some concerns about overreaction, and it's, it's warranted because of the overreaction we have, have seen not least when, you know, the pr prior fascist boogeyman before Trump was Saddam Hussein. Uh -huh. But the, the real fear, I think, is, is not in that direction. It's normalcy. It's in the assumption for, you know, the kind of anti-fascist Biden is that um, America's back now that Trump's gone. Uh, and uh, restoring the status quo ante is what it means to reject fascism. And, you know, on this Zoom call, we can, you know, laugh at that and say deeper reform is called for. But it seems as if, you know, this framework is actually serving our enemies then because it's not focused on their complicity or our recruitment uh, you know, what, what it would mean for a new kind of Democratic Party to get real on race, to combine it with class, to appeal to some of the disaffected millions who chose Trump, uh, uh, and which is a very different choice, by the way, than choosing Hitler, with all due respect to, you know, to, to Jason. Claire, yeah. Well, just to speak directly to your point, I mean, sort of the what's next, which I think speaks to this. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, you know, like all strategy, you have to outflank the enemy. You have to get in their rear. You have to break up their their uh, their defenses. And I think that you know that in some ways is 
I don't want to say it's separate. I think but it's a related issue and it speaks to what Jody's saying. I and mean, what we really need is a stronger socialist movement in this country that can make a clear critique of the broader capitalist economic system that is obviously bipartisan, um, that is driving the contradictions um, that have led to the rise of Trump. I mean, I think that's relatively clear. Uh, my own view, though, is I don't know. I mean, how are you really ultimately going to expose the Democrats? I don't know if it's not by using the word fascism. I, mean, I think in some ways the hardest way to distinguish for, you know, true socialist, progressive, you know, I, I don't know, whatever people want to call themselves, to distinguish from Democrats is ironically enough, I think, on questions of race, uh, in particularly on questions of white supremacy, because in many ways, even though their analysis is very shallow and completely, totally incomplete. Um, for example, I mean, the entire Biden administration uh, claiming to be for Black Lives Matter while promoting a program program uh, that will actually strengthen the police forces um, in black working class communities. I mean, uh, stunningly and ironically in many ways, um, but still very notably. Uh, but nevertheless, because one, most black people who vote vote for Democrats. Two, because the rhetorical differences between what Republicans, you know, Steve Scalise, I'm David Duke without the baggage, um, are willing to accept. Uh, it's difficult to make sort of, you know, real um, uh, differences there. So I think in some ways um, there's a benefit to building, e even in the context of knowing that the anti-fascist language is being deployed by liberals in a duplicitous way. Um, uh, it, it's certainly happening right now. I would say in many ways, even some of the impeachment conversation um, had some of that rhetoric around it. Um, nevertheless, the, 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 the element of an analysis then brings the rest of the framework into play because the real question will be since we're we're obviously in a dire economic situation um you know tens of millions of people facing evictions uh, i don't have to say here 85 million people can't pay their bills i mean the ability to lead real struggle and to distinguish where the democrats are unwilling to do anything at all will be the key point of differentiation and if we are in a dialogue with those who are in this sort of liberalistic framework i mean just like all trump supporters are not you know, terrible people. Many of the people following these liberal leaders are exactly who we need. We're in the conversation to be able to be a poll that can be distinguished, um, you know, sort of vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, what really is the road to lead to some form of, of victory here over, over what's taking place. And so I think that, you know, it's sort of a two-track question. Um, and obviously, just to speak to two quickly more things, I, I just want to say, I also very much agree with, I think, the, the sentiment here that we should be trying to find, you know, people in the Trump camp uh, who we can win over. I mean, obviously there was 120 counties, right, that voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump once and some of them flipped back to Biden this time. Obviously there's an interesting complex story and reality there that we can and should take advantage of. I mean, the woman who was shot in the Capitol uh, who's a QAnon supporter, voted for Obama twice. So there's obviously a lot that's there. I think the same can be said. You look at almost every single major black city in America, Joe Biden lost votes Um in comparison to Hillary Clinton. So I think there's a widely large, untapped, disaffected group of younger people who are affected by these uprisings who can also be mobilized. Um, and, and I think just the final point is, I also think when you look, and I hate to make too much out of the exit polls and all of that, but I do think it's notable that people making less than 50,000 there are a lot of white people who supported the Democrats and Biden, as terrible as they may be. And I think low-wage worker organizing in the South, you look at what NC Raise Up is doing, that's the fight for 15 in North Carolina, um, is a real spearhead into making uh, inroads into this the, these populations. And finally, uh, domestic terrorism, I think, is the real yeah. liberal threat. And I think that we have to oppose any domestic terrorism law from Biden 100%. That They have enough, they have so many laws that can repress people right now, they don't need another one. And they're only doing it to repress the left. So that may be sort of a 
slightly separate issue, but I did just want to note that because yeah. that is a big liberal piece. That's related to, I think, the apparatus that you're talking about uh, so much, uh, Danny. And also, I will say you're right, Eugene. You know, sometimes I, I do generalize about people. I put them all into one category. And so I'll just say that not all Biden supporters are a basket of deplorables. Not all. Some right. of them are, but some of them can be reached and redeemed. We're going to come back over with that. Yeah. that, that yeah. I mean, you're building bridges. Very Biden-like, some might say. Yeah, yeah. yeah for... Uh, yeah, okay. yeah, Jason. Yeah, quickly. First of all, first of all, I think yeah, the the Bob Abakian communists I just talked to, who all were voted for Biden, are, for example, persuadable against liberal yeah. agenda. I just so, have to uh, convince Bob Abakian's not. Uh, so let there, me just say something yeah. personal, personal about the Trump Hitler thing. Um, so you know, uh, all seven of my great aunts and uncles were murdered by Hitler, all 150 of their children. My great grandmother was gassed in Sobibor after watching her son killed in front of her eyes. Uh, every member of my, my father was beaten on the head by uh, truncheons on the streets of Berlin and had epilepsy his whole, whole life. And I had to hold his tongue when he had his epileptic fits from being beaten by the Nazis. So I, I know about the deprivations of Hitler. It's also the case that my mother worked in Manhattan criminal court since 1986. And she saw what was happening to black Americans in this country. And to her growing up in Siberia in a labor camp and being repatriated back to Poland, having my grandfather being beaten almost to death by anti-Semites in Warsaw in 1948, what she saw with black Americans reminded her of the way Jews were treated in Eastern Europe, uh, with the way anti-Semites are not. So, and you know, the fact that that black America, the, 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 so the analogies between what black Americans have faced with militarized police, and particularly for me, because my parents growing up always talked about how they were taught, how they were spoken of, how they remember. My dad's first when he learned to read. He learned to read what people were saying about him. And it was the kind of thing that Trump says about, about Muslims, black Americans. I mean, it wasn't being hit on the head. It was the rhetoric. And so as the father of two black children, you know, I'm extremely sensitive, as you know, to, to that coming, you know, what Trump is doing, like, you know, you know the police not just not just the background fascist things but the rhetoric the way that he talks think about muslims think about muslim families uh so yes you know no he hasn't done what hitler has done uh of course not it's not total war uh he's probably not capable of it it's not genocide it's not you know but you know let's not minimize what this country is like for, and i know you aren't doing that sam but uh, but I feel very strongly about that. Uh, and about now, there's an empirical dispute between us. And that empirical dispute drives, I mean, Jody gave me for the first time a, a mechanism to say, even if Sam and Daniel are right on the empirical dispute, it doesn't matter. But, but I just disagree on the empirical dispute. I've been using the term fascism for a long time. And it is just utter BS that the that that Congress people, the New York Times did, didn't allow me. I mean, it is impossible to use that word. It is not at all. Uh, I speak to Congress people. I speak to politicians. They all say, oh, come on, it's populism. It's not fascism. It's populism. And I say to them, no, don't stop using the term populism. But the word they use is populism because they want to blame the left. Uh, so it's just empirically not true that that Joe Biden uses the term fascism. He doesn't. You know who uses the term fascism? 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I've written two articles defending Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's use of the term fascism. She's the one who uses the term fascism. It's not Joe Biden. Just very briefly, I just, I just want to clarify, and Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think either of us are referring to the literal use of the term, but sort of the political logic that that what our, our current explosion in anti-fascist discourse represents. And I think what we're arguing is that that political logic uh, permeates the institutions of the state. Um, so yes, perhaps in 15 years, uh, due to AOC, anti-fascist discourse will take on a different valence in this country. Um, that That isn't to be to be decided, um, but the way that I view the constellation of forces in this moment um, suggests that that won't be the case. And to, to Jody's point, what I would say is we could try to reframe it like you're suggesting, um, but that successful reframing project will rely on lots of different things. One of which, uh, one of which, is whether um, the identification of fascism resonates with what most Americans think of when they think of fascists, um, and that again is an imper. And so to be decided if that is a political project that will succeed, I have my doubts, but I just wanted to make our arguments and disagreements clear. Yeah, I am. Um, let's think a little bit about um, Sam's argument, which I think is is a really good one, um, that one of the problems um, with labeling the um, attack on the Capitol as part of a fascist mob and linking that into um, fascist histories in the U.S. is that it gets the Democrats off the hook and makes them not accountable. I think that's a legit argument, but I think that that just tells us what to confront. And then that opens into the institutional argument, which points out their, well, one, their historical complicity for years and years um, with um, Jim Crow and segregation, if we're going to make that historical background encounter the hegemonic um, presentation, but also the present, right? We need to we need to force the Democrats to think more. How is it that they helped make that Trump possible, right? How is it that the um, the Obama years were not some kind of opening into a new, more egalitarian, multicultural the United States, but in fact were part of a um, attack sets of increased attacks on immigrants, um, more and more um, uh, imperialist expansion, imperialist war, right? Why weren't things, why didn't the Democrats do a better job? I mean, this, it's not like it's like one diagnosis used for the current events is everything. It's like we you it opens up a path and then we do have to make the um, Democrats accountable for the rise of fascism, for what in what led them um, to what, what made it possible for these mobs to become so much more popular for groups that had seemed to be marginal. Why did they become popular? Why was Trump the next stage? It means the Democrats failed, right? We need to we need to force that. So I, I I think your argument's good, but I think we can use it on this side as well. So like do uh, both uh, things at the same time. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, we can we can tr- walk and chew gum at the same yeah, time. Definitely. It's not like there's only one argument you can ever use. Right. Yeah. No, Sam. I totally agree, and I you know I would love to see that happen. That kind of you know it, it would really be a reappropriation of anti-fascist discourse from its theft uh, in the Cold War and and especially after. 9-11. But in, in hoping for that outcome, you can't understate the difficulties. And we have to have a lot of caution 
about the reverse effect, which a lot of people are working towards, which is Trump washing the Democrats and have been for four years. And not just anti-fascist discourse, but our collective response to January 6th, I believe, based on what I'm seeing, is not serving your cause and mine, but that Trump washing. Uh, and, you know, you know, even if that battle's lost, it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying to reappropriate, you know, our fascist analytic. But, you know, it, it, it can't be, you know, in ignorance of what the other actors are doing. And especially, I think, of what the constellation of forces, to use Daniel's term, is right now in Washington. Uh, and, and that's the perspective from which I speak. Can you actually just elaborate a little bit on that? Like what is happening? Because we've kind of referred to this, you know, the surveillance state, um, the anti-terrorist discourse. But can you just talk as a, uh, you know, from a, a law perspective also about what is happening, what we can see uh, happening on the horizon, what's already happening? Well, there are widespread proposals. You know, Eugene's talked about them, and I totally agree with what he said, to um, add new tools to the national security yeah. and surveillance state in the form of, you know, the war on terror come home, a domestic uh, counterterrorism framework um, to add to, you know, the the good laws we already have to, you know, pursue, you know, the, the criminals and to sweep a lot of black and brown people up along the way, mainly. Um, but, you know, then we have the impeachment, uh, which is the kind of melodrama of the day. You know, unlike the last impeachment, I think, you know, this has a lot of symbolic value. Um, and yet, uh, it's, it's also, you know, it, it's also symbolic and it's about, you know, drawing a line. I think frighteningly, it's mainly about inviting some Republicans who served Trump for years to switch side at the last minute and Trump wash themselves, mm -hmm. uh, to, 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 to use the denunciation of his evil uh, as if they were on the right side of history, along with the Democrats. And so, you know, I think we just have to watch what happens under Biden. It's not that long, you know, seven days when the old guard returns in foreign policy. They're talking a bit of new talk, but, you know, I, I don't know, you know, as George W. Bush said, fool me once, you know. As, shame, shame, uh, shame you know, on The me. domestic policy stuff is really interesting because we know that on domestic policy, there are some different personnel and there's just no way that the Democrats can contain the rage, uh, including African-American rage that they've that have, have 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 brought them to power and that they've 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 successfully accessed. So I think that's where our opportunity lies is to you know keep pressure on them. But I just you know. It, I just don't think we should mix up what we want to happen from what may well happen so that we guard against, you know, the things we don't want to happen and not just, you know, uh, develop our, our, our own analyses as if they were widely shared. Hmm. Jason, yeah. So I think it's fair to say we all agree together and Sam, you know, I owe you as your colleague uh, you've walked me through, and I've learned so much from you about the 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 normal the, the normalization of the status quo, uh, and we want to avoid the normalization of the status quo. Uh, the subject of today is uh, how much 
does fa- talking about fascism, does thinking about what Trump did normalize the status quo? To me, Trump's bad, and this I'm just drawing on Jody's points, Trump's badness can be used to condemn the status quo. For example, by saying, uh, look at what led to Trump. What led to Trump was Obama's failure to dismantle, to prosecute the Iraq war, the, the, the war of terror, the security apparatuses that Daniel rightly condemns. Those are the things that led to Trump. We let people torture people in America. You know, we let all this happen and we do nothing about it. Um, so, uh, so I, you know, I, I think that talking about this as a bad thing is something that will help us go back and say, let's revisit 9-11, let's revisit the Iraq war, let's visit the lying and see, and all those people got off scot-free and what message did it send? So that sense. Secondly, you know, because I spend all my time surfing because I get all these death threats from the far right. So I, I spend a lot of time on far right websites. And January 6th was a heroic day for them. So you're like, I think January 6th will uh, will be play this role of normalizing and whitewashing. January 6th is going to be remembered among the far right and, and maybe not even in the far right. Let's and, and the QAnon supporters and as a heroic day, as a time of memory. And so for me, for this growing social and political movement, you know, Eugene brought up Modi. Let's recall that Modi started out on the extreme far right. Uh, 1992, the mosque attack, uh, you know, Gujarat, the riot in Gujarat. These were far right extremists. So one of the differences we have, empirical differences we have, is how do we balance these things? We don't want to whitewash, but we also, you know, we do face, uh, you know, we do face this growing, uh, you know, January 6th is going to mean many different things. So you say we can't, you know, I agree. We all here agree. We need to revisit the past, re-prosecute the Iraq war, make sure bankers can't do what they did, make sure the Democratic Party doesn't enable Trump again. Um, and, and what we're talking about today is, does the fascism discourse or conceptual framework or what have you do that? Uh, but we also don't need to, we also need to remember that January 6th will have a very powerful role going forward in other ways. I just want to add, I think um, Jason's points are are just great. I just want to add to the list of things that have to be done, the points that Eugene was making um, earlier when he was emphasizing the absolutely um, crucial need for there to be a broader, deeper, wider um, socialist movement that um, really bringing more people into a socialist movement is a crucial is a crucial part of addressing the fascist threat in breaking that down in making there be other alternatives and um, Jason Flag problems with you know with the you know with the banks and the bankers and I was thinking about in addition to the real frustration the failure to prosecute the Iraq War the fact that everybody saw um, the federal government bail out banks and not people. That exactly. does, I, I think the level of damage that has done has probably been underestimated. And that that's also an, a way to um, to reframe what the Democrats have done, what government's done, and what it could do. 
Yeah, because the fa- fascism is enabled when you say, when the when the fascist leaders can say, look at the corrupt elites. And the elites were corrupt. Yeah. Guess yeah. what? The elites were corrupt. They were yeah. right. <laughs> so, you know, that is classical. You know, I'm always saying you can't have the elites be corrupt again. You can't have massive inequality with the elites because Trump was right on that in 2016. Yeah, I mean, he and Bernie, you know, they were both right about certain things. They just had the exact opposite diagnosis and suggestion, right? Like they both picked up on people's anger and one of them was like, blame Muslims and Mexicans. And the other one was like, you know, blame corporations and the 1%, which is not, we cannot kind of emphasize that enough, I think, because as you were saying, Jason, the media does this really sloppy, ahistorical, false equivalency, populist thing. It's like you couldn't they couldn't be function more differently. You literally you speak to the same and overlapping population. You tell one scapegoat the marginalized. You tell the other uh, you're being screwed over by, you know, corporations and greed and and certain laws and, and loopholes. Well, um, to mention it's also a deep historical injustice to the populist movement. Right, of course, you know, yeah. We've had Thomas Franklin. ability to use yeah. movements. I mean, to have one million black people and one million white people in the South unite to create a powerful political party. I mean, it, it, there's a great book by a guy named Omar Ali about black populism. It, I, I really encourage people to read it. There would be no populist party without the unity of black and white in the South, quite frankly, because the West... They were doing their thing, but without breaking up the solid South, they could do nothing. And I think ideologically, that is a big part of the using populism is, and this maybe speaks to, to Daniel's point, a big part of the liberal discourse uh, in crushing left-wing politics is to yeah. turn populism into a right-wing thing. Yeah. yeah. And just to, to just agree with that, the only reason we thought about populism in a, in a poor light for so long was because a Cold War liberal historian named Richard Hofstadter published wildly successful books about it. And I think that that sort of, you know, intellectual project of which Hofstadter was a part is the complement to the type of security liberalism that I'm so afraid of. Um, and I'm, I'm publishing an edited volume on this, hopefully now, and it examines how these are all parts of this discourse that's permeating American culture since 1945. And I think that's a discourse that reemerged after 9-11. And I think that's still a discourse that's in the mainstream Democratic Party. You see it in the fact that Democrats wouldn't even vote against a 10% decrease in the in 700 $740 billion defense budget. You see it in the fact that Democrats are still very fine with 750 foreign military bases and 200,000 troops stationed abroad. And who knows, with given the people that Biden, who has appointed to foreign policy positions, who are all the most aggressive members of the Obama administration, the younger generation, uh, what they're going to do abroad. And I think this sort of discourse, again, feeds into that project um, almost by definition. Well, yeah, we disagree there. But one thing, uh, you know, I mean, I'm confused with your comments about discourse versus conceptual framework, because we're all agreeing that the term fascism is only used by the far left Congress people. And then you switch and say, this dis- discussion doesn't have to do with the term fascism. I agree that AOC uses it. It has to do with the framework. But then I'm losing sense because I think you and I generally are critics of U.S. imperialism and do and do think we, you know, I mean, I don't know much. I think this course will be easily appropriated. I mean, I think yeah, this. But you guys said earlier that it was the dominant. Well, isn't the media? I mean, are you referring to MSNBC people? Like who, uh, uh, Dan or? Yeah, the the liberal establishment, the liberal the media. The liberal establishment does not use the word ter- term fascism. I've yeah, they, they compared Hitler constantly to Trump and, and all of the. That's uh, ridiculous, Jason. I mean, it's like a standard meme across Twitter, across MSNBC. I don't, Twitter is not, uh, AOC is the main person who uses the term fascism. 
She's the, uh, I've talked to multiple political figures and they say, we don't, you know, that's not a word that is a polite word to use. And these, it's not the political scientists tell us it's polarization. <laughs> you know, I, wish that were, I wish that, I wish that were true, but it's not sadly. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually uh, like Finding we can, someone. we can look through on Google trends at, you know, what, what is the incidence of, of the, the term fascism and Fasc it's, it's not AOC was in that perspective a late adopter. Although again, I I would completely love to see her develop her yeah, use of it in the direction that you and especially Jody have been outlining tonight. And and as Eugene reminds us, has been a, a really important, albeit recessive, even amongst African Americans, uh, you know, way of thinking. So there's some empirical disagreements here that we have to do the the linguistic research on and look through. And now I'm curious about this because, I mean, I think there's also a difference between the elites as in like professors and um, uh, I, I, I should have these examples. Wow, on. What, a, what a swing. The elites is in the professors. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not talking about you guys. I'm saying you probably go to dinner parties. Like I'm assuming that Daniel, you go to not dinner parties. Because of COVID. Where, okay, right. You have gone to dinner parties and now Zoom dinner parties where people are saying, oh, he's an absolute fascist. This is Nazi Germany, whatever. But but, but I'm trying to remember uh, if, the, if like Lawrence O'Donnell has said that. Um, I mean, yeah, there's Rachel Maddow has definitely said it. I believe O'Donnell has said it as well. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure, Jason. Again, we'll have to do the empirical yeah. research. But, um, is this really important, though? To like, I don't the think so. That the I, mainstream I media are using, or is the important thing? What is the way to split the right? What is yeah, the sure. way to mobilize people so that they can recognize? Okay, this part of of my frustration is going in a bad direction this part of my frustration sure. can go in a better direction, right? I, I think that give, like being constrained by, you know, people on Twitter and MSNBC, MSNBC is not a good model for I was I was responding directly to Jason. You know, oh my, my view it is, I, I think like yours, that, um, and that we, I was we need to understand exactly how it is that, uh, that that we got to this situation mm -hmm. and how we can organize both intellectually because I think that's quite important although not as important as you know other things and 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 other and other forms of mobilization you know to to disrupt this this pattern and and I, I think that it's it's really not accurate to um, to you know if if we deny how much productive work that the anti-fascism frame has done for the, the Democratic Party uh, in really, I think, misrepresenting the nature of the Trump presidency, but above all, absolving it for its historic sins. So that that's where we are and will be in seven days. And, you know, I think we'll have to check back because I'm going to be glad to stand corrected. But as Jason you know, knows, I've predicted in print that with the passing of Trump, we'll see an, a marginalization of uh, a lot of the claims about fascism that were were utterly hegemonic, not in our version, but in this more mainstream version for four years. And when that happens, you know, the idea of saying that America has a fascist history will seem insane uh, in polite circles. 
and you know you'll wonder what happened to the glimmers of insight that were available uh, because there was this shocking event when elites lost control in both parties uh, and and you know Trump embarrassed them. And that's with his election, or or January sixth, and then I'll. Yeah. Sorry, what? That the that that moment you're talking about Trump. No, no, I think I think I think. Sorry, you know, I I think for for four years we began to get a lot more critical insights into American history because of Jason, you know, and and Eugene and so many others. The worry is that that as of January 20th, what, a, what it will mean to say America is back is to go back to the old corruption right. as if it hadn't produced Trump in the first place. And the idea that America was anything else but the power world historically that vanquished fascism will seem insane. Right. So this is why Jody's point was so vital, because Jody's point is, hey, let's not let that happen. Well, I agree. Well, I know, but but but, but, but a wish is not a deed either. Let's keep but dropping this framework of talking about how the United States does have a fascist past, how we saw that almost personified in rhetorically minimally. Uh, like, let's keep that going. Let's emphasize. Look at what happened. Look how explicit things got verbally. Look at. And and let's 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 use that to change the Democratic Party. Let's remind Biden of his of the of the crime bill of the 1990s of uh, and and that's Jody's suggestion. And that is, I think, the only way forward. And secondly, let me make a, a second point. So I, I think so. We you know we can we can come back to that as to whether Jody and I are right about that. But the second point, uh, the point about analysis and prediction, uh, you um, you know. There's an empirical thing, uh, you know, I don't, in November and December, there was a lot of ridiculing of people who thought that, I mean, literally in November, people were saying, Trump is just a clown. He is no authoritarian. He was just pretending. Um, I think a, a framework of analysis, if we see that the United States does have these, uh, this, you know, that, that Trump and Hawley and Cruz, like what we're seeing in the Republican Party, we're seeing in the Republican Party many people willing to go this path, many people openly willing, not just faking doing the, the Mitch McConnell thing of, of being uh, democratic, uh, pretending to go along with democracy, but people who are just openly, you know, no, forget it. Um, so that is that remains a risk and a prediction, and it's a prediction that certain frameworks make, and we need to keep in mind that risk. We need to keep in mind interpenetration of the far right by by uh, by police, uh, uh, interpenetration to law enforcement by police, military, ICE, all those things, and those are minimized on a framework that doesn't talk about fascism. Just, or, I, like fascism that's a good fascism. argument, right? I think I think that makes sense as. Uh, I mean, Sam, to your point, like, look, the, there's a real risk of normalization and ba- and everything is like, you know, Biden is here. It's going to be. It's not a uh, risk. Look who was elected. Look but, who's staffing. It's going to be this kind of new restoration. But I think that that Jason's pointing to people like Cruz. We can think of 197 members of the House did not vote to totally. impeach. We had people mm-hmm. even after the doggone attack on the Capitol still voting to upheld 
uphold purely, really fraudulent um, charges regarding the election. I mean, I, it it might be the case that things are too far gone for the sort of renormalization actually to happen. The crack might already be too deep, and someone like like the, the Democrats aren't going to be able to heal that. The the rupture is already there. What do you think of that? Oh, like, I, I find I, that really. I'm concerning. sure that I think it will be near impossible to suppress. Uh, the just the 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 mainstreaming of you know as as Eugene and Jason have said what African Americans have been saying about the American state for many years, um, uh, you know it's it's I do think that the fascism framework leaves something to be desired even there because it doesn't let us access the way in which Democrats and Republicans alike. Um, were, 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 were working together in, in staving off the possibility of a transracial working class majority. Right. Uh, and that's, that's, that was normal politics. It wasn't fascism. It led to Trump. And that would be, you know, more or less, uh, I think, a much better analysis of how we got here. And it would set, suggest certain remedies for the future. But I, I totally want to uh, agree with Jason that January 6th wasn't trivial. It was a symbolic uh, breakthrough for the far right. It really depends how many people cherish its memory and how powerful they are relative to the president, the new president, who will you know lead a nation who that that thinks of January 6th as the moment the tide was turned by, you know, the 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 American spirit. Um, and and so, I, you know, I, I just want to make sure we're sensitive to the risks uh, and I, I don't think we can wish them away, especially when we're on Zoom and they're in Washington, you know, deciding how to engineer that restoration. And it's something, you know, that we should be, I think, quite concerned about. Oh, I think it's important that we actually look at who the protesters were. Um, and it's very difficult to really come by accurate numbers of who they were. There were a smattering of Proud Boys and a smattering of various far-right groups. But it seems like a lot of reporters on the ground, um, and I'm thinking in particular of Will Summer, um, a lot of the people that he talked to were QAnon, which is this bizarre, strange conspiracy theory that has exploded during the pandemic. So I think that also, um, and I may be wrong here, is that um, it seems like that is a real serious problem that just referring to these people as beyond the political pale um, isn't, uh, it, it doesn't edify or clarify about what is the alienation and depression that is driving them. And I think that is what equating them with fascists or equating them as insurrectionists does in a sense. Well, I, I don't, I mean, I agree with you. So the one of the things that focusing on something like fascism or I'm not, but some, what we, what, or something, some concept like it is that the people there were not all poor, disaffected white people. They came from an incredibly diverse class. There were of course. car dealer ownership owners, uh, I can tell you there were some physicians, there was an anesthesia, you know, there were, there were uh, the number of people, there was a three-time Olympic gold medalist. Yeah, what sport are we talking about? You know? The, the, the people, was it swimming? Yeah, and swimming, and swimming. Yeah, a top, you know, it was, and 
So, okay, so, one second. Sorry, Daniel has to go. He had told me this, so thank sorry, you. Sorry, guys. Uh, Daniel, great talking. I'll listen later. Sorry. Bye. Bye, uh, Daniel. Thanks. Thank um, God he's gone. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I, but I don't think I think that's part of you know QAnon is uh, you know Sam's work on on cultural Marxist conspiracy theories is relevant here, Q, and Talia Lavin's incredible piece in the New Republic that everyone should read on QAnon, where she talks about how it's protocols of the elders of Zion plus blood libel. You know, uh, so that's I what we is. had that covered. I thought we were, we did blood libel. Uh, uh, <laughs> not part of it. Oh, we'll, we'll review that later, but anyway. Right. I mean, I mean the level of anti, the, the, the anti-Semitic tropes that QAnon is a Nazi conspiracy theory. So, you know, th that's the structure we're facing. And so those pa historical parallels help us understand how a cross-class uh, group um, yeah. that is not materially based uh, can fall for this and the dangers uh, that, that we face uh, going forward. And, you know, yeah. And Jody, I heard you say on Doug Henwood's show, uh, like right after the election, you were saying something about identity politics and demographics uh, not being destiny. Um, which is something that I think it's kind of hard to, it's uncomfortable to talk about because the movement is not quite as homogeneously white uh, and certainly not as male as we would maybe think it was. I was surprised by seeing the footage at the Capitol. Um, um, I, uh, I was actually talking with Doug about uh, exactly this um, today and um, particularly the, because he's like, well, if you're associating fascism with aggrieved masculinity, what about the women out there? And it's just like that there's aggrieved masculinity doesn't mean that that's something that that particularly men think or feel like anybody could think or feel that. Right. So like, point, in fact, um, you know, the, the more that we can recognize that that our that people's politics is not something deep embedded in them in an like mole or you know un, um, unshakable, but that politics can be changed, that you can convince people otherwise, that you can give them other incentives, that you can give them different frames and detach them from identity claims, the better. And yeah. I actually think that um, that in in a lot of ways. The, they mobilizing people to reject the fascist assault on the Capitol, to reject the complicity with the fascist assault on the part of members of Congress and members of the police, to recognize that members of police forces across the country have people who are fascist in there, can actually break up assumptions regarding the racial character of these to see that that a racial like a, a police force can be enforcing capitalist and racist norms no matter how multicultural, yeah, multicultural the members of the police are so but um so having more political analyses substantive political terms will help break up these identity things and, and to piggyback on what you were saying jody vis-a-vis -vis the role of the police i mean i think there's also a tactical question let's put trump aside here let's just focus on the sort of self-identified fascist, if you will, who are obviously trying to take advantage of this. We've seen Matt Heimbach and these other, you know, idiots out there trying to organize. I think it's worth remembering what sort of really 
pushed deep into the shadows, that brief little effervescence that was happening around Charlottesville was that anytime these people started showing up, um, they were unable to really marshal the relationship of forces in any way, shape or form that was, was relevant. I mean, certainly traditional workers party, um, a hundred percent broke up because they were like, we're going to surge. Um, but they never surged. And, uh, that led to some internal beefs. But I say that just to say that the sort of liberal anti-fascist discourse is heavily predicated on the role of the state as a repressive force, right? On like, don't go, like, I mean, look at what Muriel Bowser of Washington, D.C. Don't go down there. Don't deal with them. Like, we're going to isolate them. We have the police. I think anyone who's ever organized a demonstration against the Klan knows exactly what I'm talking about. All these people who come and say, let's go 15 miles away um, and say nothing. And I think just the very fact of that distinguishing in the tactical level, when people are saying, how do we confront fascism? What do we do? Well, when the actual fascists show up and try to fly that, that unambiguous flag, we have to show them that there's overwhelming force and they will be stopped. I think that will differentiate quite a bit um, sort of a, a real anti-fascist politic from a fake one, um, and perhaps as a way to steal a little bit of a march uh, on some of those who are looking to mobilize around um, sort of similar sort of racist issues. Can I ask you guys one question that came up? This is from McMindfulness Who Moved. So how can the left ever strengthen itself when labor laws already on the books have deliberately not been enforced for decades? Has any sector been more hostile to unions than tech? Is there any indication that pro-union legislation is coming? Anti-union fascist. Anti-union fascist? Oh, anti-union equals fascist. Okay, that makes sense. Anti-union equals fascist, yeah. Um, I, the, uh, I, I, I really like the question. I think that it's important to look at the um, really st um, the strong achievements of the teachers and nurses unions in the last few years. Like they've did, um, you know, they made real progress. And I also think if we keep in mind the wildcat strikes um, from the beginning of 2020, uh, particularly in, in, in Amazon warehouses, that showed that there was a union in energy. Now, this is not like, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of grasping at a little straws here. It's not like a heyday of unionism by any stretch of the imagination. But that, to, to my mind, is a sign for the importance of organizing and the need for organizing, not of, oh, my God, you know, like, like things are doomed. So I think trying to recognize it, it's a really important um, side of struggle. And, um, you know, my God, like in the passing of of the kind of um what was it prop what was the number prop 22 was that the uh, yeah, the, the uber thing the uber yeah. delivery horrible yeah. um reinsertment of yeah. um portrayed as racial you know, justice when it, it yeah it was terrible it. right i mean that's a major defeat but that also means that's a place for for mobilizing and for organizing and because it's going to come to every other state and so people have to um be aware of that and organize around that yeah. Any fun? This is great. Any final last words from you guys? I'm really grateful for your time. You got to come back on. We have to do a part two. Figure out. We've hashed it through. Now we need a game plan. Yeah. But yeah. That sounds, sounds great. Good. Thanks. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. It was a nice talking to everybody. Bye, guys. See you next time. Enjoyed it. Bye. 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 Bye.